0: Wonder Things Studios proudly presents a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast, 20 Minutes with Peter Newman. Hello, literary alchemists. I'm Dave Robison.
1: And I'm Michelle Graham. And I'm Emily Singer. And
0: you've tuned in to a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast, 20 Minutes with...
1: 20 minutes with is an opportunity to sit down with some remarkable storytellers so we can explore their craft in our never-ending quest to improve our own
0: indeed and in my never-ending quest to have even more awesome people on this podcast at the same time Michelle Emily from the awesome beyond the trope podcast thank you both this is gonna be fabulous you guys had me on your podcast uh, just a couple weeks ago and I figured it would it would be rude if I didn't return the favor so so thank you guys I'm glad you're I'm glad you're my wing people for this episode.
1: Of course, we're pretty excited to be here. Yeah, thanks for the invitation.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And friends, if you have not caught the awesomeness that is the Beyond the Trope podcast, please do so. Not now. Wait until we're done. But then by all (laughs) means, afterwards. Exactly. Uh, uh, Michelle, Emily, what's the the URL real quick, just so people can jot that down?
1: It's just www.beyondthetrope.com.
0: Fabulous. All right, friends, make a note of that, bookmark that bad boy. But right now, guys, sit back, relax, have a sip on your virtual scotch, uh, uh, light a virtual cigar. I-, I need to introduce you to our guest host for this episode. Now, friends, there are challenges to this whole researching guest hosts business, not the least of which is the guest host's name. Now, if you're Cameron Hurley or Brad Bolier, that's one thing. But if your name isn't quite that exotic, then it's anybody's guess what's going to show up in your search window. Now, our guest host for this episode, for example, is not a famous Canadian journalist. Nor is he the voice actor who performed Tigra in The Thundercats. Nor is he the protagonist of a military thriller written by Oliver North. <laughs> but if you search for him on the web, by God, that is what you are going to find. <laughs> However, through stubborn diligence, shrewd insight, and a sacrifice to a lesser demon, I was able to tease a few snippets from Tay interwebs. Uh, Our guest host grew up northwest of London in a town called Watford, where he received his first infusion of nerdish geekery, watching He-Man cartoons and old black-and-white episodes of Flash Gordon. Now, as his tastes matured, he began pursuing genre novels. Now, it is said that your first sip from the cup of speculative fiction defines forever your aesthetics of the genre and our guest host cut his teeth on the fabulous stainless steel rat books by Harry Harrison. Now he read the Lord of the Rings at age 11 mostly because he was told by the librarian that he was too young to read them. Sadly, She was right. They went right over his head. Uh, He did reread them a few years later, but completely skipped over all the songs. Now, he offers that last bit as a sheepish confession, but let me tell you, We all skipped over the songs. Uh, Then he cleansed his palate on the Dragonlance novels and was ready for more. His tastes evolved towards the more mind-blowing and evocative speculative fiction like Zelazny's Lord of Light, Gaiman's Sandman comics, and Alan Moore's Watchmen. Now, in primary and secondary school, he experienced the same death of creative joy that so many of us have endured as the love of creative fiction is blunted and grayed out into literary criticism and analysis. But it's clear that while the flame may have dimmed, it didn't go out altogether. He went on to study drama and education at the Central School of Speech and Drama, That's right, friends, chalk up another theater major that made his way into the realm of crafting speculative fiction. I think it is now a two-to-one ratio, friends. (laughs) He continued his education, securing a postgraduate certificate of education, then went on to work as a secondary school drama teacher. Now, it was around this time, roughly 2001, that he applied serious effort towards drafting his first novel. The event was so traumatic that he apparently blacked out for a couple days, awakening to find himself in an opium den in Hong Kong surrounded by dead ninjas and clutching a copy of the first edition D&D player's handbook in his hands. No, that's probably not what actually happened, but, you know, okay, what actually happened is he had made the classic blunder we all make after playing D&D for a few years, and hubris obscures our better judgment. He drafted a novel based on a role-playing game he was running. Now, other than a decent first line, the less said about that, the better. Uh, Now, so scarred and maimed was he by this first experience that a decade passes, during which time he inherited a billion-dollar empire and went on to fight crime as a masked vigilante through the streets of London, aided by a wise and stalwart manservant. Yes, okay, I'm making that up, too. Uh, But, you know, the reality is just as awesome because in this time, he meets the love of his life, Emma, who is just as creative, inspired, and geeky as he is, and they fall in love and get married. Now, the happily ever after part is where things get really interesting. Now, Emma was a writer, too. She authored the splendid Split World series, uh, and that no doubt contributed to the rekindling of our guest host's passion for storytelling. Now, in his own words... It was pretty straightforward, really. I wrote a book. It sucked. I wrote a sequel. It sucked less. I wrote a third book in a new world. It only sucked a little. I rewrote it, and it was good but not good enough. Then I wrote The Vagrant. It didn't suck at all. (laughs) <laughs> that really is kind of the classic progression. A few revisions and editorial passes later, all the while listening to the Mass Effect 3 soundtrack, he had a polished novel ready for shopping around. And now the narrative shifts to an epic montage of our guest host reviewing agents, attending conventions, learning about submission letters, and all the nuances of securing an agent. Now, it was during this time that his wife Emma launches the fantastic Tea and Jeopardy podcast, in which she hosts various literary luminaries in her secret tea lair. She is aided in these endeavors by her loyal, if somewhat pathological, manservant, Latimer. And our guest host co-writes the episodes and plays the part of the pathological Latimer. Uh, Now, it bears mentioning that Tea and Jeopardy is the only podcast I'm aware of that has inspired fan fiction. (laughs) I ran across this. Alexander Maki of the Digesting Hannibal podcast posted a delightful bit of shipping fan fiction in his tumblr feed postulating on the butler's true feelings for his mistress Uh, i will if i can find that again i will include a link in that in the show notes because it's epic uh now continuing the narrative in august 2013 our guest host is poised and ready and launches himself into the terrifying void of shopping himself and his novel he doesn't have to wait long, although I'm sure it felt like an eternity. Four months later, he was signed on by Juliet Mushins, and one month later, he had a deal with Harper Voyager to publish The Vagrant. Now, the publishing of The Vagrant, that splendid event, is imminent. In fact, friends, it's tomorrow. At least in the U.S. And the response has been remarkable. In fact, John DiNardo listed The Vagrant in Kirkus Reviews as among the best science fiction, fantasy, and horror reads for April. That is pretty damn awesome. Now, there are excerpts out there in the world, and I will urge caution to anyone reading them you will be hooked. You will be hooked hard. You'll be hooked so hard that the 24-hour wait between now and the release of the book will seem like an eternity. Now, if you just gotta have something to tide you over until the vagrant is released upon the world, then I urge you to check out the Pseudopod podcast, episode 410, Flash on the Borderlands 12, Brit Shock. Our guest host wrote the final story in that chilling ensemble, The Biggest Candle of them all. And while you may have to dig for it a bit, he also wrote a bit of microfiction titled Practice that postulates humanity is a failed experiment, but that's okay. The creator went on to perfection by making a world of cats because cats are way more fun than humans. I don't know. He currently works as a trainer and firewalking instructor, which sounds pretty damn fun to me. And while there are no searing hot coals strewing the floor of the RTP virtual studio, we are still fortunate to have him with us now. So, dear friends, please welcome to the big chair here at the Roundtable podcast, Peter Newman. Peter, I can only imagine what an utter froth your life is right now with the vagrant coming out and firewalking happening all over the place in in England, I'm sure. So I really appreciate the time that you've taken for for joining us. Thank you, sir.
2: Well, thank you, Dave. And it's lovely to be here. And just before we get going, I wanted to say this is a bit of a milestone moment for me. I remember remember Emma coming on this show a few years back and thinking when you were introducing her that if there was one thing i wanted before i died it was to have you introduce me so i would have that as a memory so thank you very much
0: <laughs> i am on your bucket list
2: yes well, I'm-, <laughs> I'm-, I'm ticking it as we speak <laughs>
0: i am flattered and honored sir it was my singular pleasure uh and before we start the timer and dive into this i i gotta ask what does a fire-walking instructor do? Just real quick.
2: Well, it is pretty much as it sounds. We turn up, build a fire, teach people how to walk it, and then take them over safely. Uh, sometimes in the name of charity, so people get sponsored to walk on the fire, <laughs> and uh, and sometimes as a sort of motivational thing or a training exercise.
0: And, and, and is it just a matter of, okay, see those coals, walk really fast, or is, is there more to walking the fire than, than just...
2: I suppose there's two sides to it, really. One is is the technique of walking, which is pretty straightforward and simple. And the other is getting people to have the confidence Mm. to do it safely and sanely and to trust me that it's going to be okay.
0: Very good. See, see, friends. You tune into the roundtable. You learn stuff you weren't prepared to learn. That's awesome, Peter. I, I, I'm utterly intrigued by that, and the fact that that there are people that 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 pursue that as uh, a thing uh, is is exceptional. Now, just again, I'm I'm sorry. I'm just going to go down this rabbit hole one more step. Where did you learn to firewalk?
2: Well, my uh, father-in-law is um, an ex Navy survival officer. And, uh, and this, yeah, he can survive anywhere in the world. He's a clear, <laughs> guy. Um, lovely guy as well. Uh, and he's, you know, he's tough. He can do all kinds of things. I'm not tough. I'm quite soft. I'm easily bruisable. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I basically, I worked with him for a while and he eventually showed me the ropes and uh, brought me in. Very good.
0: Very good. Okay, I, as intriguing as that is, let's let's reroute back to the roundtable theme. But thank you for that, Peter. That's that's fascinating. I'm I'm going to go ahead and set the timer here. We'll of course ignore it. But, uh, <laughs> but it's good good to have goals. Uh, I'm going to lead off, and then I'll turn it over to Michelle and Emily. Um, Peter, recently we aired uh, an episode of the roundtable. Dialogues uh, where we discuss the influence of gaming on speculative fiction, and as I was reading the your interview in *Civilian Reader*, uh, you cited some of the influences for *The Vagrant*, uh, including uh, a few computer and role-playing games like *Warhammer* and, and *Final Fantasy VII*. So, I'm curious, wh- what what kind of influence did those games have on your storytelling? Was it was it just aesthetics, or or did they actually contribute? in some way, to the to the narrative or, or the, the character progression in the story?
2: Well, I think in the case of Final Fantasy VII, it was mainly aesthetic. Okay. But it was also the fact that it was a fusion of fantasy elements, but also more modern elements or technological elements, uh, and a, a kind of bringing those things together, and, and a place where people have guns, but they also have magic, and they also have swords, and it all works. It's all okay. <laughs> and in terms of Warhammer, I think the, the biggest thing with that, is that in a lot of role-playing games and stories, the, the enemy has a kind of a focus that is defeatable. So even, say, in Lord of the Rings, you've got Sauron, uh, who can be beaten, and his armies can be beaten. But in Warhammer, the enemy seems infinite. And even coming face-to-face with, with the forces of chaos in Warhammer... Generally speaking, you still lose even if you beat their forces, things are still destroyed all around it, so
0: it's kind of like call of Cthulhu. you just can't win that game,
2: yeah, so something of an enemy that seems unbeatable and just seems too big to fight, I think came across uh into the vagrant as well, and also Warhammer is just brilliant, <laughs> brilliant <when you've> <laughs> it. So, I've got a role playing background, so Warhammer was my kind of main game that I ran as a as a teenager, so
0: all right, I can see that I can totally see that now was other than that that concept and i i can't wait to read the book and find out how that undefeatable enemy manifests in the story um were were there other influences D- did you feel constrained at all having having played in that aesthetic of you know these are the character classes these are the skills these are the levels and what you can do at this level did you feel any kind of constraints or or Limitation as you were telling or exploring at least early versions of the story uh, uh, that, that that gaming influence imposed on you?
2: I'd say absolutely not, but the, it's quite an important point. This I think sometimes people think that when they've role played, they can just sort of transcript it into a book, <laughs> and those things that just does not work. There are certainly ideas or things that are useful through role playing, and I think role playing is useful for world building. But in terms of writing, you can't be worried about system or what works within the kind of meta mechanics of a role playing game. You have to worry about what makes a good story.
0: Do you, do you feel that that impairs the story? I, I guess my, my question would be then, what is it that makes it so bad when you try and, and translate a gaming narrative into a story? I'm kind of playing devil's advocate with that.
2: Um, but, uh, I would say that as a, as a player in a role playing game, there are lots of things that are wonderful to do that are boring for a reader. And things that might be cliched or that we've done a hundred times before are fine if we are the action hero in that sequence. You know, if I'm in another car chase, but I'm the one driving the car, that's great. But if I'm reading about it, unless it's doing something really fresh or it's brilliantly written, it's not going to hold me.
0: Okay. That makes sense. That makes good sense. I like that. And actually, we could riff on that probably for another 20 minutes. But I'm going to turn the mic over to Emily. Emily, did you have a question for, for Peter?
3: I have a couple. Um, I'm, I'm always really interested in writing in different mediums. Uh, some of the authors we've talked to on Beyond the Trope write novels and write comic books, for example. But Peter, you co-write for the Tea in Jeopardy podcast. What's the difference between writing a novel and co-writing for the podcast? And do you prefer one medium over the other? Good Good question.
2: OK, well, they're, they're so different. I think one of the things that, you know, Tea and Jeopardy is a very frivolous, light, funny thing. Uh, and The Vagrant is, is very much not. I mean, there, is, <laughs> there, are, there are dashes of humour in The Vagrant, but it's very much a, a very kind of serious or dark world. Um, and the other difference when you're co-writing something is that you're bouncing ideas off each other all the time. Uh, I would say one of the big differences is I laugh a lot when I'm scripting tea in Jeopardy. and Jeopardy. <laughs> I, we, we laugh all the time when we're when we're plotting it and planning it. Uh, whereas the vagrant, I didn't laugh very much at all.
3: <laughs> <It>
0: was, <laughs> I would imagine that <laughs>
2: yeah, it was quite hard Well,
0: work. but you read you read your your chapters and and what you've written out loud to Emma during your, the part of your writing process. Is that correct?
2: That is correct. Yeah. So when I've written something. One of the first things I'll do once I've gone over it and I'm kind of happy with a scene is I'll come down and I'll read it to Emma. And that is partly because I she'll sometimes give me feedback that's really valuable. But it's also by reading it to someone else. I read it much more closely than I would if I'm just reading it on my own. Sure it makes, it makes mistakes in the text or or problems with flow of of the prose leap out in a way they don 't when i 'm reading it to myself I,
0: I think that 's a wonderful asset that that audio fiction has brought to to the writerly uh, toolbox is the discovery that reading your stuff out loud is is a fine editorial pass. For, for finding those things I just uh, attended a, a writer's workshop in in the Smoky Mountains and at the end of the day we would read uh, you know a few minutes of our, our work to our, our co Workshoppers, and and it's true. As you as you speak out loud, you go, God, I'm just rambling. Shut up and move on to the next scene or or whatever. It can expose a wealth of ills, to be sure. I,
2: I think it's a little bit like when you send an email to someone or you send something to your to an editor or something like that. The moment you sent it, you suddenly see all the mistakes. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> this is <laughs> way of, sort of highlighting those mistakes before it goes out to the wider public.
0: We'll be back with more of our conversation with Peter Newman after this brief promotional break.
4: On a quest for domination, evil sorcerers from another land tore apart the barriers between our worlds and the release of magical energy burned the earth. Ten years later, a young woman named Skylar took control of the magic and used it to stop them and seal the rift. Earth was saved. Or so it seemed. Now, a new threat rises. Though the rift was closed, sorcerers from that distant land still live in our world, and the greatest of them, Embryal, has vowed to open a new rift. Helping him is Cassandra, a dark reflection of Skylar, Who is devoted to him heart and soul. Will Skylar's magic be enough to stop them? And when she finally comes face to face with Cassandra, will she use her power against someone she so easily could have become? Written by Justin R. McCumber and published by Crescent Moon Press, A Broken Magic is the second book in the Born of Fire series. Skyler's adventure began in 2012 with a minor magic, and now it continues as Skyler once again pits herself against powers older and stronger than she is. Amy Dale, author of Off With Her Heart, says, Justin McCumber's Born of Fire series follows a very unique storyline, and I love that it doesn't feel just like every other book I've read. He has an amazing way of developing a universe that you can see. I am excited for what more is to come from Mr. McCumber. And Philippa Valentine, author of Wraith and Hunter and Fox, declares, Justin McCumber knows how to master both action and character. His writing takes you to places you'll want to go. A Broken Magic is available in print and ebook from Amazon and Barnes & Noble. To learn more about the author, please visit him at JustinMcCumber.com and facebook.com forward slash Justin R. McCumber.
0: Let's get back to the conversation with Peter Newman. Peter, what's your experience with with your editor? I, I, there's a lot of dread, the, uh, at least among younger writers like myself, uh, uh, in, in the concept of submitting your baby to an editor who we we envision with this this chainsaw axe and this this bloody knife, and they're just going to hack and a hack and a hack. What, what was your experience with your editor?
2: So my editor is uh, Natasha Barden and. I had exactly that fear, you know, would she want to radically alter the story or destroy it or things like that? But actually, the, in some ways, the experience was the opposite. It was, it was, it was very, um, very thoughtful edit, but generally it wasn't radically hacking things. It was normally asking to explore things. Mm. It was almost the opposite. So in, in actual fact, a lot of words got added onto the draft that initially went out, like new scenes went in and development kind of more on-camera of certain characters, things like that. But no, it was, it was actually very smooth and very painless. I'm very much hoping the same will be true of the sequel, because she does have the
0: <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, we'll, we'll hope the same. What, what advice would you have for, for writers as they, as they prepare to, to shove their manuscript into an envelope or probably more likely attach it to an email and, and send it off, uh, uh, just in terms of preparation and, and mindset for that?
2: Well, I'm always a little bit wary of uh, of handing out advice with these things. But <laughs> as far as you've asked me, uh, what I would say is two things, really. One is that before they send it out, what I'd be hoping is, is that they'd finished it. They'd left a nice big slot of time. They'd gone through it again. They'd left a nice big slot of time. It had gone off to test readers who weren't just their fans that they will come back to them, they'd read it again, they'd edit it, they'd leave it again, they'd look at it, and then send it out. And the moment it's gone out to, you know, whether it's for an agent, an editor, um, whoever, I would say then start writing something else. <laughs> Good advice. Because then if you do get rejected or things go wrong, you're no longer just hooked into your old project, you're hooked into a new one, and the lessons you've learned you'll have already started using. And I think you've got your momentum then to keep going. Otherwise, I think it's very easy just to get very despairing and sad.
0: That's a good point because really starting a new book is a win-win. If, if the book comes back and the editor loves it and, oh my God, it's fabulous and we're going to publish this, uh, uh, then you've got this other book in the hopper. And if they come back and say, oh my God, this is utter dreck, you've got another book in the works and you, and you can carry on from there. That's, that's awesome. That's great yeah. advice.
2: Because there's a lot of waiting at seemingly every stage of the, the writing game. And, and the only way I deal with it is is by writing new
0: stuff. Sure. Well, you you signed on with Harper Voyager over a year ago, and and The Vagrant is just now coming out. Yep. <laughs> and then that's enough of that. <laughs> Michelle, what about you, ma'am? Uh, did you have a question for Peter?
1: Of course. Well, of Emily course. always asks the questions about medium, and I always like talking to other authors about their editing process because I love editing and since <laughs> you're, you're <laughs> twisted that way. Weird. <laughs> yes, I am very, I'm a strange person. I can't help it. So Pete, you said that you're reading your stuff out loud to your wife and obviously probably changing things as you go. So what does the rest of your editing process look like after you've read it aloud?
2: So after I've read it aloud, I'll, I'll as you say, pick up issues From the reading, I'm also very lucky in that I live with a writer, so Emma will often give me points or thoughts that she has that I'll make notes in the text. Uh, Unless it's a major issue, normally then I'll I'll carry on writing. So I'll get a first draft done, and then the first part of my editing process is just to stick that in a drawer and leave it be, because I find that unless you've got some distance from the writing, it's very difficult to have any kind of objectivity to it. And I also find often when I first write something, I quite like it. and then when I, <laughs> As we all do. <laughs> and I think, wow, oh, this is brilliant. And then Absolutely. I back, yeah, I come back a little bit later, you know, maybe a few months later, six months later, something like that, and then suddenly things leap out. Um, and often it's just a kind of a smoothness thing. So I'll notice there are things which are clear in my head, but I haven't made entirely clear in the narrative. Or cliches or issues that I was too close to spot before. Uh, and then I'll go through that again. Uh, certainly, with, it was different with different projects, but certainly with The Vagrant, I wrote it very slowly. And so, actually, the first draft was quite a polished first draft when it was done. But that said, there was still a lot of editing to do. And it was only when there had been a gap that I could kind of address that properly. So I go through it all again. And then when i had done that, normally then what I would want to do is give it to someone else to look at. Well, might be Emma, might be test readers.
0: Well, and one of the things that I've noticed about you, Peter, in, in, in reviewing your process as you approached, you know, once you had the vagrant in hand and you were proud of it, and, and you said, yes, you know, every all the feedback I'm getting is positive, I can pursue forward. You didn't, as 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 so many of us do, just, hey, here it is, somebody buy my book uh, or, or represent me and publish my book. You went through, I, I would hazard a guess, at least a year, if not more, of research and preparation and study before you even considered the idea of actually putting it out there and and have, pursuing a rep. And first of all, massive respect and kudos. The, the, the restraint, that was either restraint or stark terror. Which was it?
2: Uh, well, it was restraint, but it was restraint that came from Emma rather than from me. So ah. one of the massive advantages I had was that, You know, she was able to say, "Just wait," and then do this first and do that first. And I think a lot of people don't have that. You know, I think on our own, it's very easy to get caught up in an echo chamber of madness. (laughs) You know, you know, Emma had done. You know, she's fallen into all those those potholes for me, and you know, done things and had to find it all out herself. And I benefited a lot from that knowledge.
0: Good. Well, okay. Friends, there's, there's writer's tip number 316, marry a successful author. <laughs> and, uh, absolutely. No, by all means. And, you know, just the ability to, to receive and, and digest and understand the, the input that she provided. I mean, that, 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 that speaks very highly of your, of your wisdom and savvy as well.
2: The, the story that I always tell here is that when I wrote my very first manuscript, uh, I was obviously delighted. And uh, like a sort of excited puppy, I ran to Emma and said, hey, look, look, I've written this book. And, you know, would you read it? And she did. And she read it. and She finished it. And she said to me, that's great. Now write another one. (laughs) You know, our marriage was tested in that moment, but it, it survived. And it was fantastic advice because often the first book that we write is us trying to figure out how to write a book. It is not our masterpiece. It is just us practicing right you know and, and that actually most they talk about the kind of the 10-year overnight success story that most writers don't just you know and, it, and those that do i i hate you <laughs> but for, most, for most of us you know we it takes a long time and, a, and it takes several books to get it right and there's always that thing you know what if you write something that isn't very good and you did somehow land a publishing deal is that the book you want going to all the reviewers is that the book you want to have everyone talking about it yeah it probably
0: right. isn't well and but you can also take the the you know the whole notion of the 10 year success and the fact that the first book you're writing is probably a practice book that that encourages the long view and and you know other individuals you know Mike Cole Peter V Brett a lot of them have have put out there that you know make sure the work you're putting out is the best work you possibly can and and I've I've invoked this in the past that that can be a very paralyzing a uh, uh, piece of advice, because you know, if if you don't have the the to step up and say, "Yes, this is the best book I can write," most of us are going to go, I, "I I'm sure in a few years I can do better. I should just wait." So so I mean, I, I pose this to Sam Sykes. I'll pose it to you. How do you reconcile that that I want this to be the best book that I can with the knowledge that in five years you're going to be a better writer?
2: Well. I mean, that's always hopefully going to be true. Hopefully, you're always going to be evolving. But I, I sort of cheated this one a little bit in that it was the point that everyone else around me started saying, this is ready. <laughs> it wasn't for me. You know, I, I, I wasn't sure. And, you know, I'm fond of most things that I've written. I now know the early things weren't good enough, but I only know that several years down the line. And it
0: doesn't change your fondness for them, just your awareness that as a story they weren't they weren't framed effectively.
2: Yeah, and the fact that I wouldn't want them to be public.
0: <laughs> I don't <laughs> want anyone. Hence the trunk novel. Hide them. Well, Peter, I, I I mentioned in in the intro the the, the presence of an excerpt, and uh, uh, it is out there, and it's <laughs> delicious and and tantalizing, and has goaded me towards the pre order button. Um, and I noticed to my delight, uh, that it's written in the present tense. And I think that's fabulous. I've, I've dabbled in the present tense as well. And I find it to be a very compelling narrative tool. And I'm curious what, what motivated you to sort of step out of the norm of the, of the third person, whatever. And, and well, not third person, but the, 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 what is it, the past tense? Past tense. Past tense, thank you, yes. I is a good writer. Um, and uh, actually uh, embrace that that present tense voice for the story.
2: I actually think I started writing it in the past tense, and then it started to slide into the present tense without me really thinking about it. Interesting. One of the things that happened with The Vagrant for me that was different to my other projects was that with The Vagrant, I, I kind of knew what I wanted right from the word go but I didn't necessarily consciously know it so writing writing each scene was often like sort of descending into the depths and when I got the right thing I knew I got it but it often took a long time to find it and the same was true with the tense that I started slipping into present and then slipping back out again and slipping in again and then finally it was it sort of it just felt right and I think what you said about it being compelling I wanted something that felt, I suppose, edgier and felt more tense and the present tense provides that. And I think also because the book is very focused on the actions of the protagonist, somehow present tense felt right there as well.
0: That's intriguing that your, your instincts were, were kicking in at that point.
2: Yeah. Uh, and it was very much an instinctual book. Uh, and as I say, that made it very slow. It wasn't something that I'd kind of plotted out every, everything in advance it was something that i it, the vagrant sort of just turned up it actually started as a flash fiction and um then it became a serial and then about 25 episodes in i realized it was a novel
0: <laughs> oh my god and 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 what a wonderful evolution to d- to discover there's there's it, it it would be like you know knocking down a wall coming to the end of whatever framework flash fiction a serial whatever and realizing no no there's more here. It, it would be like opening a treasure chest and finding gold. That's awesome.
2: And it is sort of what happened again as well, in that I wrote The Vagrant as a standalone novel originally. But as I came towards the end of the novel, I realized that there was another novel waiting to be written.
0: Can you speak to that? What What was it that gave you that, that sense that there's more here? Because you, you went into it thinking it was standalone, and then something changed. What was that, do you think?
2: Well, the... There is a kind of an arc in The Vagrant, um, but in the telling of that arc, I was also painting a world, and although one arc was coming to rest, there were other arcs that had been set up in the telling of that story that felt like they wanted to be explored. And whilst some doors were shutting as I came to the end of the book, there were others that were just starting to open as well.
0: Oh, man. I'm so ready to read this book. <laughs> Emily, Michelle, we've got time for one more question. Tosses coin in, uh, uh, you know, blood match. However, but but give us give us one more question for Peter.
3: Michelle, you should go because <laughs> she has this
1: like huge
3: page full of questions.
1: <laughs> well, by huge page, <laughs> she means there's maybe ten. <laughs> it counts uh, as a huge page. Well, let's kind of step a little bit back. You said that. You are learning things as you're writing these drafts of each novel. So what have you learned from writing The Vagrant?
2: Well, one of the things about The Vagrant is that the, the protagonist is silent. And I decided quite early on that I didn't want to give the reader access to their inner thoughts because I thought that would be cheating somehow. You know, they don't speak, but you can hear all their thoughts anyway. So you know what they feel, you know what they're doing. And I like the idea that whilst we get into the heads of other characters, we don't get into the vagrant's head and that we have to decide for ourselves as a reader why he's doing what he's doing and what he feels and what he thinks just based on what he does. And the thing that I learned here is that most books have a lot of dialogue in them. And that takes up a lot of the page. And also the other thing most books have is a lot of internal monologue. And that takes up a lot of the page. So I learned a lot about telling stories through through action and through setting up atmosphere. And and that's really hard work. <laughs> no doubt. It's really nice to just have some characters chat and say, hey, what are we going to do next? It's really easy. <laughs> makes life a lot easier. Or for your character to, to see something that's a bit strange and then think about it or work out in their mind what something is or what's going on. All of these things are really useful to, to explain things to the reader. And I didn't have those in the scenes with the vagrant. So that was that was very challenging. I learned a lot about that. But but what it what it gave me, I suppose, was it, it stopped me being lazy. I think there's a laziness sometimes to dialogue. I mean I'm not obviously good writers use, use dialogue brilliantly and I'm not I'm not attacking dialogue altogether, but it's often a thing we can fall back on to just to, to move the plot forward or to explain something in a very simple way where it can be much more powerful to show it.
0: What advice would you have then for for a writer who wants to employ a more evocative, descriptive tone uh, to their works?
2: Well, I, I would obviously suggest that they buy The Vagrant and read it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that goes without saying. Absolutely.
2: But- but uh, otherwise, I suppose I would, I would maybe suggest that they write the scene and then strip the dialogue out and see what's left.
0: Nice. Yeah, I can actually, I can see that as a, as a wonderful writing exercise, and and then and ensure that the narrative is sustained through descriptors and so on in the in the show don't tell vibe. That's awesome. And Peter, I gotta say, I I really, you know, granted, I just read the excerpt. I haven't read the book yet because it's not out. But. Uh, I got a strong sense of like a, a lone wolf and cub. I got this this very Japanese ronin uh uh the enigmatic character moving through Did was was there any any of that cinema that was informing your vision as you were moving forward?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um I remember seeing the f- the, the film Seven Samurai. Right. And being really struck by sometimes you'd have a scene where it was just a character walking across A landscape for quite a long time with no music with nothing else and yet it was utterly compelling or a scene where we're actually seeing a close-up of a character's face so you know something is happening off camera but it's just looking at the character's eyes and so much is being told Uh, and I suppose it was that focus on individual things like a feature of a character's face or or just a simple movement but it's a, a kind of a beautiful movement And also it tells much more in a very simple way. So I'm not saying I achieved that, but that was certainly something (laughs) in my mind when I was writing The Vagrant, that I wanted to capture something of the power of these very simple movements.
0: That's excellent, and, and friends, you know, to to find out. I mean, we, we've we've raised a lot of questions here. Did Peter manage to capture that? Is that an effective tool? <laughs> Tune in tomorrow at your local Amazon or bookseller where you get your stuff. Buy the Vagrant and find out. And I will be. I'm sorry, I'm going to be ahead of line. You. I'm gonna be there already. I'll have bought my book, oh. uh, but but you can you can pick up yours and we'll all get together and we'll find out did Peter pull this off? I'm sure he did, and if he didn't, he did something equally awesome, uh, uh in his own way. Friends, I'm, I'm looking at the clock and it is it is sporting a samurai sword and is casting a magic missile at me. But apparently, we're out <laughs> of time. Uh, Peter, this has been fabulous. Thank you so much for making the time, sir. We appreciate it. Thank you, absolutely, Emily. Michelle, there was I look back over the last twenty-ish minutes or so, and and I, I see strewn with literary gold and writerly bon mots. Uh, uh, what Emily? What are you taking away from this episode? What what stuck in your head as we were speaking with Peter?
3: Uh, marry a successful writer. No, <laughs> <laughs> Roger that. Bucket um, list go. No, I I really like the uh, exercise idea of write the scene and then strip the dialogue out. Yeah, and and see what's going on with the scene and use that to strengthen my description. Cause I'm totally one of those authors who falls back on dialogue when I don't know what else to do. That's excellent.
0: Yeah. yeah I think I, I couldn't agree more. That's, that's a, that's a brilliant exercise. And I intend to put that to use myself. Michelle, what about you?
1: She stole mine. Welcome. <laughs> I do that a lot, don't I? Yeah. She usually steals all of my ideas. <laughs> um, I think definitely focusing even more on reading things aloud. And before you give them to anyone else, I think that's mm-hmm. a really good idea.
0: Absolutely. And, and with with the impetus towards audiobooks and audio fiction growing stronger and stronger every day, uh, uh, making sure your your story sounds and reads aloud well is, is almost just as important a career move as, as making sure it reads well. Mm-hmm. So awesome! Very cool. For me, it was it was early on. It was it was Peter mentioning that there are things that a, a player character does that's fascinating to the player character, but utterly tedious and boring uh, uh, as a narrative in a story, and vice versa. And that really got me thinking because because I'm a nerd like everyone else. I, I roll some dice. I play some characters, and and as a storytelling tool, I, I consider the world building and the narrative building of, of role-playing games a very effective writing tool. But I hadn't really considered that that which events in a, in a role-playing game actually are, are the death knell for a written narrative and vice versa. And I'm, I'm not sure exactly what those are uh, off the top of my head, but I, I'm going to look into that because that's, that's fascinating. Well, friends, thank you, as always, for tuning in. Uh, uh, now, the awesomeness of the roundtable is this. you, Your head is swimming. You're going, ooh, Peter gave me a lot of good mojo. Uh, that was very generous of him. And it was. Uh, but but come back in a week, and we're going to have Michelle and Emily and, and Peter back. And we're going to bring the third part of the Beyond the Trope podcast podcast giles onto the show and he's going to be our victim i mean our guest writer <laughs> I
3: uh, mean, michelle and i do like beating him up so <laughs> we pretty it. appropriate and
0: that was pretty much why we decided giles was going to be the guest writer we're going to have him back and we're going to engage in a frothing brainstorm of awesomeness with all of us uh, uh and try and dig out some literary gold from the story buffet uh Ooh. that master giles is going to be laying out but friends that's That's seven days, and I know, I know that's a long time. Now, you're going to pick up The Vagrant tomorrow, and that'll help, but that's still, you're going to consume that in a day, maybe two, and that leaves five that you got to fill. Michelle, Emily, what do you think our listeners should be doing between now and seven days from now, aside from reading The Vagrant?
1: Well, I would say that they should be getting published so that you could do a super awesome intro for them when you interview them on your podcast.
0: <laughs> I think see the the fact that I'm on people's bucket lists and now I'm the carrot being dangled out in front. I feel I feel the love, guys. I'm feeling the love. <laughs> That's great advice. Yes, get published. I'll give you an awesome intro. And I will tell you as I always do, dear friends, that you find what you're looking for. So if you look for the good stuff, look for the awesome, wow, amazing treasure chest brimming with whatever treasure you want in it. I promise you, if you look for it, you will find it. We will be back in just seven days. Until then, you guys stay cool, be frothy, and be awesome. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode of The Roundtable Podcast is copyright 2015 by Wonder Thing Studios and is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown Gary Gold, David Labroyer, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation, or just learn more about us, visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter at writerspodcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.